0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
0: My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back from the break. We thought the best way to jump right back in would be to do more crabs. That's right. We had uh, we'd,
1: we'd just recently done a couple of... Uh, episodes about crabs eating strange things and we had some we had some crab run over anyway so we thought (laughs) well what what's what better than to go ahead and just jump right back in
0: to more crabs crab overflow Did did you happen to eat any crab over the break rob
1: i went crabbing with my son and my and my brother-in-law um Mm -hmm. and they did catch crabs and they were excited about them i ended up not eating any of the crabs just because uh I don't know. I Just wasn't feeling it. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, you you, you got to be you you, you got to want it. So um, so I, I abstained from the consumption of crabs, but I did get to observe some crabs.
0: In my experience, I feel like it's always kind of embarrassing to eat a crab. You're just sitting there working on it. You know, I guess it's all of the the intense concentration it takes to like crack the pieces and stuff. You're not really following the conversation at the table very well. It, it's you're in your own world. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a,
1: one of those activities that, that puts you in the, uh, it feels like it puts you in an archaic mindset, you know, you can imagine yourself, um, you know, uh, you know, pick, picking apart a carcass uh, on some sort of primordial shore, uh, sort of a situation, and, and therefore you do get in the zone, you get in the crab zone, right? Um but uh, I don't know. This this year I wasn't feeling it, so I, I did not have any crap. But I was I was in New Orleans, uh, and I did enjoy some uh, some very nice food, uh, some very nice drinks. Uh, I made it over to Latitude once more and had some uh, some drinks at uh, Beach Bum Berries.
0: Oh, did they do anything with uh, tiki turkey puns for for this time of year?
1: Uh, well, no, it's, they get into the the sipping uh, Santa thing. So there were some oh, Christmas okay. ones. I had a, a Christmas Eve of destruction, which was very nice. <laughs> Okay, okay.
0: But we got to talk crabs. The people want crabs.
1: Yeah, let's get into crabs. So, um, you know, in our our most recent episodes on crabs, I, I did dish out a little bit of crab mythology. And I mentioned how crabs don't often seem to have central roles in myths and folklores for various reasons uh, but but that doesn't mean they don't have some very fun cameos and of course I do hold out hope that there are some some other crab myths and legends out there that I just don't know about and so as always if I'm missing something write in and let us know now in the Eight Immortals Cross the Sea, an important Chinese work of the Ming Dynasty. You basically have the story of these eight powerful humanoid beings using their various powers to cross the ocean and kind of show off as they're
0: doing it. Okay, I'm trying to – is this something we've talked about on the show before or similar to it? Are, are a lot of these beings sort of uh, uh, overlapping with the animals of the Chinese zodiac? I believe we've talked about the immortals before, but I don't think we've
1: really looked at this particular work. Um, okay, uh, and, and you might be thinking of the the, the the Chinese zodiac origin story about the the animal race, uh, okay. where they have to cross a, a great river. Uh, so, so this is different than that. Okay, uh, but basically, these are these are super beings. They have superpowers, and so they're showing off as they cross the ocean. And crossing the ocean also entails outsmarting and overpowering the Dragon King. Uh, as this is his domain and uh, we have mentioned the dragon king on the show before uh, but it's said that the dragon king is served by quote shrimp soldiers and crab generals <laughs> as this is the sea after all and uh, and i believe these 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 uh, sort of shrimp soldiers and crab generals also show up in tales of the monkey king uh, when uh, when he encounters uh, the dragon king or the dragon king's soldiers
0: what is it about uh, crabs that puts them in commander
1: roles to, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, are you going to put the shrimp in the commander role? I mean, it, 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 it seems true. like a no-brainer, right? But yeah. the, the thing is that in these stories, the shrimp and the crabs are generally seen as ineffectual. So, you have this saying that emerges from these tales. Uh, you, you have references to shrimp soldiers and crab generals. This has just become a, become a way of referring to ineffective soldiers. Uh, so, I, I kind of like that phrase.
0: Oh, okay. So, would this be kind of similar to when people say uh, tin soldiers, like T-I-N? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think this would, be, this would be a version
1: of that uh, in Mandarin. Now, there's another Chinese crab myth that I was reading about that, that was really fascinating. I, mean, I wasn't really able to get quite to the bottom of it, but it pops up in Yang, Ann and Turner's Handbook of Chinese Mythology. It concerns the Yellow Emperor, and there are a lot of stories about the Yellow Emperor, and this one just happens to involve crabs. A lot of these emerge from uh, from Xinjiang in Henan province, and, uh, and this one seems to have as well. And in this particular tale, the Yellow Emperor's attendants find a nice cave for him to visit in the summer. So this is just just a really nice cave. It's cool. Uh, you know, there's some water there. You can rest. Uh, very comfortable, except there are way too many mosquitoes and other unwanted vermin living in the cave. Ugh. So, the Yellow Emperor just kind of casually mentions, like, geez, I wish someone would drive these creatures away. I wish somebody would wipe these creatures out so I could enjoy this cave, because otherwise it's a great place to spend the summer. Mm -hmm. So, what happens when uh, an individual of great power casually mentions a desire? Well, oftentimes... Uh, somebody will uh, see an opportunity. And that's what the crabs living in the cave do. They hear this and they they decide, well, let's do it. So, they drive all the unwanted creatures out of this wondrous cave. And as a reward, the yellow emperor is said to uh, have given these crabs an extra set of legs. Quote,
0: thereafter, only the crabs in the local
1: pond have 10
0: legs. Wait, I'm confused. Okay. So, do do you know anything about uh, how this connects to to biology? Because so, crabs are (laughs) decapods. They should have 10 legs, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah, this is where I really started scratching my head a bit because, yeah, decapod crabs are quite literally 10-legged crabs. So, what would these other crabs have been? Well, I guess it it seems to get complicated because technically decapods can have as many as 38 appendages. And Mm -hmm. generally, the uh, the periopods, or walking appendages, are what we very loosely refer to as legs, and there are five pairs of those. But uh, at the same time, many common crabs, such as ghost crabs, uh, they do run around on four pairs of legs and sometimes actually only employ three pairs in running and the fifth pair of legs are the claws which we humans often go ahead and at least think of as hands right because we can mm-hmm. make we can make little crab claws with our hands and so we we kind of feel like those are the crab's hands right
0: yeah and if you want to get really technical I mean crabs have all kinds of uh bilaterally symmetrical appendages that you could imagine are legs or have evolved from legs at some point so you know crabs have jaw legs in their mouths the uh the the maxillipeds that help them eat and uh and yeah so uh, so yeah it's true even though they will typically have 10 legs or leg-like appendages, some of those could be seen as other things. Like you're saying, you know, a a person looking at a crab's claws says, well, those aren't legs, those are hands. Or looking at maybe the swimmer leg says, those aren't legs, those are fins. Yeah, yeah. Because some
1: crabs have paddles for their their hindmost pair of legs. Uh, So you can at least imagine a scenario in which someone might not count those as being part of the leg count. But, um, but yeah, I'm not really sure how to exactly interpret this story. Maybe there's something missing in translation. Um, uh, you know, I, I looked around at a few papers about extra leg genetic abnormalities in some crabs, so maybe that's not out of the question either. Uh, maybe there was just something particular about the crabs in this cave uh, environment, or, or even, you know, as is sometimes the case in accounts like this and legends, maybe it's not even describing a crab, it's something else and the legend comes down to you know describing why does this thing look a little different than what we're used to well because it did something wonderful and therefore was gifted extra appendages
0: okay what number of appendages does it become not that useful to have more of them you know <laughs> if you got if you got two arms having two more arms that seems like a real upgrade right like goro has got a real advantage over a regular human uh, but once, let's say you already have uh, uh, ten bilaterally symmetrical appendages. If you get two more, uh, is I mean, is that really an upgrade, or do they just get in the way at that point? Yeah, this is, I
1: guess this is usually a question that that evolution, natural selection, solves over time. Right? Uh, if, right. if if appendages are, are not needed, well, then they're just a drain on the the economy of the body, mm-hmm. and therefore there's a there's a, a, a possibility they're going to disappear over
0: time that they're going to atrophy. So I don't know. But uh, anyway, coming back to the the story you were telling, I, I love that detail about uh, the yellow emperor just sort of uh, uh, idly saying, "Oh, I wish someone would get rid of all these mosquitoes," because it kind of reminds me of the. Uh, I actually don't know if this is historically solid, but the at least uh, uh, the at least legendary tale of the death of Thomas Becket, the the Archbishop of Canterbury, who. Mm-hmm. When Henry II supposedly said, uh, he was like mad at him, I guess, and said, you know, won't someone rid me of this meddlesome priest? And uh, it wasn't given as an order. He was just kind of musing about how mad he was. But some knights happened to overhear him and they're like, well, okay, I guess we got to go kill this guy. And they did. Yeah, it basically seems to be the same situation here.
1: Now, um, I'm, I'm out of my depth on this, but I also can't help but wonder, maybe part of the idea of the story is the crab has so many legs anyway, and therefore it's not much of a reward. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it makes me wonder. But uh, I, I couldn't find out. I, I looked around. I couldn't find any other strong sources you know, in, in English on this. But uh, if anyone out there has any details about um, you know, strange crabs in non province, uh, crabs from the caves and crabs with extra limbs, write in. I would love to, love to have more
0: clarity on this. While you were telling the story, I, I was hit with a with a tremendously bad pun. Should I say it? Should I not say it? I don't know. It was little pinchers have big ears. Ah, that's good. Now, no,
1: it's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Now, there are, there are other crab tales to be found in uh, Chinese mythology. Uh, for instance, there are very old myths to be found throughout various myth cycles of China among different ethnic groups about the separation of heaven and earth. Uh, this is, of course, something you see in, in other... Um, myth cycles as well Uh, and in Chinese traditions sometimes there is a sky tower or sky pillar connecting the two and sometimes an animal is to blame for severing this tower or pillar and apparently in some tellings it is a crab
0: that does the snipping. Ah well that would make sense yet again when there's something to be snipped in a myth sometimes a crab will fill that gap. Yeah Now another one that
1: uh, I was reading about. uh, This one, this is another uh, you know, uh, you know, very old mythological tale, and it's the story of of Woman Cho, uh, of whom there are, I think, three narratives in the classic of Mountain Mountains and Seas. And as Anne Beryl explains in Chinese Mythology, in an introduction, the written versions of these tales. Uh, date from the 1st century BCE and the 1st century CE, and they tell of a time during which, quote, there are two people in the sea, but we only meet one, uh, woman Cho, who is strongly linked with the crab, and it seems like she may either take on the form of a crab or she has a crab that is her attendant, and it seems like this might be a crab of unusual size. Ooh. And the reasons for this seem to include the idea that okay, you got the land and the and, and you got the sea, and uh, you have the crab, which kind of has a dual nature. Like the the crab lives on both; it can scamper on the beach, but then it can scamper beneath the waves. It can
0: swim in the water, and so forth. Yeah, the dual nature is right there in its body. It's it lives in the ocean, but it walks on its legs. But then the crab also does another interesting
1: thing: it molts. It sheds its uh, its old shell and grows a new one and this was seen as a kind of regeneration that might allow the crab to live forever and it was also associated with cycles of the moon and of course the moon has strong
0: connections to the idea of immortality in chinese mythology as well oh that's very interesting and it makes me wonder why we uh, have commonly adopted the metaphor of the butterfly as the uh, you know the, the the important image from nature of uh, something going through a transformation and then uh, and then com- coming out something new. I mean, I guess the difference there is that a butterfly looks very different than the uh, than the larval stage that went into the pupa. But uh, but when a crab comes out, it's just bigger. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that is a better metaphor. I don't know. Now,
1: woman show is also known as woman show corpse, a uh, corpse deity. And uh, this, uh, this is connected to drought and the time of the Ten Suns, the time in Chinese mythology we've mentioned on the show before, uh, when there are ten suns in the sky and they are burning up the earth. As related in the Shanghai Shang, quote, Woman Chao Corpse was born, but the Ten Suns scorched her to death. That was north of the land of men. She screened her face with her right hand. Where the Ten Suns are up above, Woman Chao lived there on top of the mountain." So she's uh, she's scorched and burned by the surplus suns, perhaps seemingly especially her hand because she's shielding her eyes with that hand. Uh, But then she is later reborn in brilliant green. So she is renewal. She is drought survival. But she is also connected to these observations of the crab and the idea that the crab uh, experiences this sort of periodic renewal as well. Now, another area concerning crabs that I was looking at uh, kind of comes back to stuff we've talked about already about the you know the idea that the crab design is a winning design, that it's emerged independently multiple times, and that, uh, according to some, eventually everything will become a crab, right?
0: That's kind of the meme. Yeah, I think the more modest phrasing is that uh, other crustaceans that are not necessarily crab-like in form have repeatedly evolved into crab-like forms multiple times in the history of life. Yeah.
1: So uh, earlier this year, Doug Johnson wrote a fun article for Ars Technica titled "On Earth, Things Evolve into Crabs. Could the Same Be True in Space?" Hmm. Uh, and so the, uh, part of this article is the author is generally summing up some of these ideas we've we've discussed already. Uh, but then he gets into this this issue of alien life because if we follow the logic that aliens might be humanoid because that's what we see emerge as a dominant intelligent life form on our own world. Then we might go as far as to wonder, well, if crabs are a popular form on this planet, wouldn't it make sense to see crab or crab-like bodies, crab morphs, if you will, on alien worlds as well? I want to believe... (laughs) <laughs> so um, Johnson reached out to one of the authors of the paper I referenced in our previous crab episode, Joe Wolf, a researcher at Harvard University's Department of uh, Organismic and Evolutionary Bi- Biology. The article was, How Does a Crab Become a Crustacean? And I have to say, I absolutely love this quote from her. Uh, This is something she told um, Ars Technica in in the the interview. Quote, there is no clear-cut reason why being
0: a crab is better than not being a crab. But if you say that too loud, the crabs in the cave will hear you and then they'll turn into something else.
1: <laughs> true. But uh, I, I love this, this quote because there's an absurdity to it, obviously, but it also does ring absolutely t- true and betrays a deeper understanding. You know, we don't have an answer in human reason and human language to the question here, but evolution provides its own answer. And the answer seems to be the crab form itself um, in, in various examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, Johnson talks to Charles Marshall, Director of the University of California Museum of Paleontology, and Marshall points out that all in all it 's a fairly narrow group of species that have become crab morphs on our planet um, that you know that we shouldn't we shouldn 't get too excited about this con- this idea it 's like well crabs are everywhere, so they must be in space like there's like ultimately it 's still a situation where the crab form has evolved. As an answer to specific questions posed by our natural environment and
0: not say uh, universal questions right and I think the other half of that uh, the other important point highlighted by by marshall 's observation here is that it's not just that the natural environment creates some pressure that encourages crab-like forms, but that it's also certain morphological starting places. Mm -hmm. If you're starting with uh, a genome that codes for a certain kind of body plan, it's easy to get from there into a crab-like form. And that body plan is like other certain types of, especially marine arthropods, you know, certain crustacean types.
1: Right. I mean, like, for example, you can... You can look at the the hands of various uh, organisms, right? Like, Mm -hmm. to get something like an extra finger or an extra thumb, it, it, it has to come from somewhere. You know, there has to be a starting point. It's not just, you know,
0: suddenly thumb sort of a situation. Exactly. So in maybe, you know, another billion years, we could find that all kinds of mammals on Earth have evolved thumbs because it turns out it's really useful for all kinds of uh, animals. But you're not going to really find, uh, say, crabs with thumbs, right, because they don't really have the morphological building blocks to start with to make thumbs. Right. But, I mean, they do do sometimes have access to thumbs because we we do mention that they, they will chow down on a cadaver. Yeah. Um, then again, I, I want just to doubt what I just said, I mean, I, I guess depending on how expansive your definition of thumb is, you could say that a crab's claws, the pinching motion, provides some of uh, what a thumb is good for, right? That a thumb can help you, you know, close your hand over an object in order to manipulate it, obviously with much more dexterity than usually a crab can, but... I can see why we
1: might look at the crab body and think, well, this might be good in in space, because Mm -hmm. we we look at the way the crab moves on land and through water, and it's easy to extrapolate that to uh, like a a microgravity situation.
0: Right. So in the same way that you have some crabs on Earth whose whose rearmost pair of legs has turned into swimmer legs, little paddle legs, to help them move through the water, you could imagine a crab whose final pair of legs has turned into ion thrusters. (laughs) Well, I I wouldn't go that far. But um,
1: uh, I I will say, add that I think another uh, aspect of all of this is that, um, you know, we – we tend to think of like crab morphs popping up everywhere and imagine them in the future and on other planets because we do take a lot of delight in these organisms. I mean, they're weird, they're stealthy, they're efficient, they're kind of funny to look at, uh, they're amusing to watch in the wild. And of course, we like to eat some of them, uh, so we have a vested interest in their existence. And that's always a great way to wind up as a noted animal for humans. Is it something that we eat or is it something that can eat us? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the the crab kind of checks off both boxes (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, with some
0: caveats on the uh, the consumption of humans. That's very well observed. But I want to come back to uh, crabs eating strange things or being attracted to eat strange things, at least. Uh, And I I wanted to do that by looking at a study I came across from just this year looking at hermit crabs – Now, we've mentioned hermit crabs a a number of times in the series. Now, hermit crabs are decapod crustaceans. They're not considered, quote, true crabs. I can't remember if we've said that already. But Mm -hmm. uh, they belong to the group uh, Anomura, meaning the false crabs, rather than Brachiura, which are supposedly true crabs. But, hey, you know, they're they're close enough. They're crabs. And so the study that I was reading about that I I wanted to talk about was actually just published earlier this year. So in 2021 – And it was by Jack Greenshields, Paula Schurmacher, and Jorg Hardigy in the journal Marine Pollution Bulletin. The authors here start by noting that a bunch of research has identified a problem of marine life being, in one way or another, Attracted to plastic waste, so uh, we've talked before about some of the problems with plastic trash in the ocean. We discussed this somewhat in our interview with Christine Figner, as it regards um, you know the interactions between plastic waste and and sea turtles. But plastic trash in the ocean is not just a sort of. Uh, accidental collision problem, right? It's not just that a turtle happens to randomly swim into a bunch of plastic six-pack rings that are floating along on the surface of the water. In many cases, it appears that animals that live in the ocean are actively attracted to plastic waste, that it is, it is getting their attention in one way or another and disrupting their natural survival behaviors, And there are debates about the reasons for this. There are, of course, no doubt different reasons when it comes to different types of plastic waste and different animals. Uh, So, for example, in some cases, visual mechanisms have been proposed. Maybe, who knows, maybe a plastic bag drifting through the water looks like a delectable jellyfish and so forth. But in other cases, the mechanisms can remain more obscure. And in this study, the authors were investigating a strange phenomenon in a hermit crab species called uh, Pagurus bernardus, which is the common hermit crab or the soldier crab. This is a species that's native to the Atlantic coast of Europe and along the the northern coast of Europe. Basically, the coast of Europe, but not really the Mediterranean. Uh, specifically, this study, I think, was looking... At the waters off of the eastern northern coast of England, so uh, off of a place called Robin Hood's Bay in North Yorkshire. I was actually listening to a radio interview on the CBC with uh, Paula Schirmacher, one of the authors of this study. And it was addressing the question of why were hermit crabs chosen for this study? And uh, Schermacher says that hermit crabs are uh, sort of a good model species to study. Uh, she identified a few reasons: they're small, they're very curious, and they have quote a a very diverse appetite, uh, which I think goes with a lot of the things we've been saying so far. Uh, that you know there are plenty of crabs out there, uh, both true crabs and and crab-like animals, false crabs. That, uh, that are not super picky when it comes to food types they'll take what mm-hmm. they can get and hermit crabs often appear to fit that bill they have a, a they have diverse diets and appetites
1: yeah I love that tidbit about hermit crabs uh, it says they're, they're interested in things that smell like food uh, but they're also interested in the sight of another hermit crab appearing to eat something
0: <laughs> so that alone is a is, is enough of a cue for them Right. Uh, but So th- this research team was based out of the University of Hull in England, and what it found was that hermit crabs were attracted to the smell of a plastic additive known as oleomide. Now oleomide is an organic compound. It's used as an additive agent in uh, numerous plastic products. I-, I was digging around trying to find out more about exactly what it's used for. And it looks like most often oleamide is used as a, quote, slip agent. Uh, and so this would be something that is added to a polymer to reduce the coefficient of friction on the surface of the material, basically to make the polymer more slippery. Uh, I also saw one of the authors here, I think it was in that CBC interview, saying that it, it helps in some ways make the, the plastic more malleable. Uh, but it seems like the, the major use of it, from what I could tell, was to make plastics less grippy, to make them them uh, a little slicker to the touch. And so you might wonder, well, why would you want that? Sometimes I think that's a desirable characteristic of plastic on the consumer side, but it also looks like slip additives are just important on the manufacturing side, especially with products involving thin plastic films like plastic bags and thin plastic food wrappers and packaging mm-hmm. things like that uh, and that adding these slip additives helps make it easier to like extrude the materials and then wrap them up tightly but oleamide is also a, a natural uh, fatty acid. It's a natural organic compound that, you know, you'll find it in our bodies. It apparently has something to do with the regulation of sleep in, in humans. Uh, and so I think has attracted some attention as a possible sleep aid, though I, I can't vouch for whether it, th- those, uh, alleged uses would be valid or not. But at least uh, oleamide naturally seems to play some role in the regulation of the desire for sleep in the human body. Mm. But again, it's also being used as this additive to help lubricate our plastics. And it turns out when you put oleamide into plastics, oleamide can sometimes leach out from that plastic into the environment. Uh, so what happens if you're a hermit crab and you are crawling along the ocean floor and you happen to stagger into a big junkyard of plastic waste that is flooding the water with, with low concentrations of oleamide? Well, according to this 2021 study, surprisingly, if you're a hermit crab, that gets you really excited. Uh, the authors of this research found that exposure to low concentrations of oleamide dispersed in water will cause an increase in the respiration rate of hermit crabs, and that this is a standard biomarker sign that, that indicates excitement and attraction. Uh, speaking to CBC Radio, Paula Schermacher, again one of the authors, characterized the, the hermit crabs reacting to the oleomide as almost hyperactive. And so the question would be, why? Why do they get so excited and stirred up when they smell this plastic additive? Well, basically, it seems that they're reacting to oleamide the same way they react when they smell a really exciting food stimulant. Mm. So this research was done in controlled conditions. But if, if this, in fact, bears out into the natural environment, what you'd have to imagine is you got some piece of very well-lubricated plastic trash that is leaching oleamide into the seawater, and then a hermit crab smells it, and then it kind of powers up, gets excited, and heads toward the food source, only to find an inedible piece of plastic at the end of its hunt, which obviously is not great for the uh, hermit crabs, because they should be spending that energy hunting for real food rather than, than plastic that they can't really get nutrition from. So why would this compound used in polymer manufacturing cause a hermit crab to react as if it smelled food? Well, uh, again, I think the answer is not known for sure, but the authors seem to have a pretty strong suspicion on that front, which is that oleamide is chemically similar to oleic acid, which is a chemical that is released by the rotting bodies of dead arthropods. hmm of course hermit crabs are arthropods as well you know uh, these these are related creatures with exoskeletons so a hermit crab may well smell a plastic food wrapper that's been you know tossed into the ocean as litter and then it literally starts heavy breathing at the thought of the ripe dead body of an arthropod cousin that that it might be able to feast on because again hermit crabs are scavengers and this is what the authors call an olfactory trap hmm all right. Yeah. Well, this this
1: makes sense. Yeah. If it smells like shrimp death uh, or crab death or, or what have you, <laughs> they're going to be interested and go over there and check it out. And even if it's not, a, I mean, even if they you know didn't actually consume any of the plastic, like you say, this is wasted energy. This is wasted
0: scavenging uh, that uh, that that should be spent on more lucrative endeavors. Right. Uh, So, yeah. So to come back to the original question, this is one indication of uh, another way plastic waste in the ocean could be harmful to wildlife and showing a mechanism of attraction. In this case, it could attract these hermit crabs by way of additive leaching, possibly on the false promise of rotting kin flesh. Mm. (laughs) Now, as to the question of uh, whether the hermit crabs actually end up eating the plastic, whether they find it, uh, I'm not sure about that. The, this study was just looking at them responding to the smell as if it were food. I don't know whether they would actually try to like get it down the gullet or not. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I thought was worth flagging is uh, th- there was an interesting case of miscommunication and some early science reporting about this study uh, because a number of early articles about the study incorrectly Claimed that the uh, that the hermit crabs were sexually aroused by the smell of the plastic additive. That is not true. That is not true of hermit crabs. That seems to have been a a miscommunication based, I think, out of the university press office where this study came from. Uh, But while this is not true for hermit crabs, it does appear that oleomide is a constituent of the sex pheromones of some other organisms like cleaner shrimp. So, you know, we can't rule out all possibilities. Maybe there are some arthropods in the ocean that would have some kind of sexual response to plastic additives. Now, I was looking up more on the relationship between oleamide, oleic acid, and decomposition, and uh, I was reading a few things that actually reminded me of of something we've touched on on the show before, which is the fact that oleic acid played a role in some classic research on ants by E.O. Wilson. Rob, I don't know if this rings a bell for you, but uh, so back in the 50s, E.O. Wilson, the, the, the great entomologist, was studying harvester ants and their waste disposal behaviors. And so uh, many ants have tremendous waste disposal capabilities. Uh, so ants will sometimes create a midden in or around their nest, basically a trash heap where they, they dump their garbage. And the makeup of this midden can vary But it will include everything from feces to debris removed during nest construction or other behaviors to the dead bodies of fellow ants from the colony. So you come across a dead ant in the colony, you want to get that out of there, and so the ants will take it away to to the midden, or in some cases just away from the nest, but in other cases to this trash heap. And the middens containing the bodies of dead ants have sometimes been referred to as ant graveyards or ant cemeteries. They are somewhat creepy to look at. Uh, They're like a spider's web without the web. Mm. The process by which social insects remove dead relatives from their nest is known as necrophoresis. uh, And that, that comes from necro meaning dead and phoresis meaning carrying or transport. Uh, But to bring this back to E.O. Wilson, in this somewhat famous story from the history of entomology, when E.O. Wilson was studying this death transportation behavior in harvester ants in the 1950s, he started to wonder how the ants could tell that one of their number had died and needed to be removed. What, what was it that triggered the undertaker behavior in a, certain, uh, in a certain subset of ants a certain period after another one of them had died? And so Wilson, he figured that this likely was caused by, by some kind of smell, a, a pheromone of some kind. In this case, it's something that would actually come to be known as a necromone. And he studied a bunch of different compounds that that could be released by a crushed or decaying dead ant. And he eventually found a winner, which was our old friend from from just a bit earlier, oleic acid.
1: Mm.
0: So according to this story, he, he then tried an experiment where he got a bit of oleic acid and he dabbed it onto a live harvester ant to see what would happen. Okay, so this is one of these compounds released when an ant is dead. Now an ant is alive, but it's got this stuff all over it. And sure enough, he reported that eventually the tainted ant was grabbed by other ants and then treated as a dead ant. So it was alive and kicking, but it was carried off to the midden for disposal. So basically he framed an ant. Yes, he hung a sign on it saying "I am a corpse," and the other <laughs> ants were like, "Okay, time to time to get to work." Uh, now, th- I think the happy ending of the story, if I recall correctly, is that uh, after the ant spent a while cleaning the oleic acid off of its exoskeleton, it successfully rejoined the colony. So it just had to get all this stuff off of it.
1: Yeah, I have, um I remember reading about this, or or we're seeing it covered in one of the documentaries about Wilson. Um, he, I think one of the things I love about him is that like he clearly has a tremendous amount of, of love for ants, but mm-hmm. it's a, a love that is is based in how they actually function as organisms more yeah. so than like anthropomorphism because it's easy to love ants and, you know, think in terms of of armies and, uh, you know, very human models of what they're doing and why they're doing it. But uh, but Wilson, you know, I wouldn't go as far well, I would go as far as to say that Wilson like speaks and understands their language because because that that is a, p- a predominant area of a lot of his study. He understands how they communicate. And in and and in doing so, he has this this understanding of of, of of what they are and you know how they function.
0: Oh, I totally agree that comes through when you hear him talk about ants. Yeah, that he he loves ants not at, not by anthropomorphizing them, but loves ants as ants. Mm-hmm. Let ants be ants. They're really good at it, uh, and they're really the best at it. I mean, if you actually – part of the problem is if you try to love ants by anthropomorphizing them, by imagining them as tiny humans, then their behavior becomes monstrous. Right. Like, (laughs) humans should not be doing what ants do, but ants should do what ants do. Ants are great at doing ants. By the way, if you want more uh, content on ants, we did a series about uh,
1: ant wars. Uh, I guess it was last year. Uh, But you can find those uh, those episodes. I think there are three or four of them in the archives.
0: But so anyway, for, for these harvester ants, oleic acid seems to trigger an instinctual behavior that says, hey, this object is filthy, rotting trash. Maybe, you know, it's some kind of garbage or it's a dead one of you. So it just needs it needs to be out of here. Get it out of here and take it to the midden. Now, in contrast with the other study with hermit crabs, I thought this was just funny because in – so in these harvester ants, oleic acid means, you know, I am dead. Take me to the graveyard. And in hermit crabs, oleic acid and and possibly oleumide, because it is chemically similar, causes the reaction of, you know, commence your heavy breathing. The buffet is now open. (laughs) But in either case, it appears to have something to do with death and decay. It's just the question of, like, does arthropod death and decay – signal to you a sort of an infection risk, something that's like, uh, whatever this is, it's, it's, it's not something we want in our colony. we need to get it out for hygienic purposes, Or does it signal something is potentially delicious and you know you're not going to miss up a chance to get some lunch? And apparently, the use of oleic acid as a type of signaling molecule conveying information about death and decay uh, among arthropods doesn't stop there. Because I was looking at a study from 2009 published in the journal Evolutionary Biology by Yao et al. called The Ancient Chemistry of Avoiding Risks of Predation and Disease. Uh, You know, so a cockroach can smell a dead or crushed cockroach nearby. And uh, the researchers determined that it was primarily by the presence of a couple of fatty acids, linoleic acid and oleic acid, again, like we've been talking about, using these, uh, these molecules as necromone cues. And the authors here separate the the responses to these necromone cues into into two main categories. So they talk about what we were just talking about, the the necrophoric behavior of advanced eusocial insects like ants, bees, and termites that will smell oleic acid or linoleic acid on uh, on a dead member of their nest and then use that as a behavioral trigger to get that thing out of the nest or into the midden safely away from the activity of the other uh, members of the nest. Uh, so that's necrophoric behavior, but then there are plenty of other arthropods, like cockroaches. Apparently, uh, these would be classified as maybe semi-social species that practice necrophobic behavior instead. So that's just avoiding the the smell of death of their own kind. And the authors here were looking at the question of how where does this come from? You know, lots of different uh, arthropods seem to have this behavioral response to these compounds. And so the authors say, quote, we hypothesized that necromones are a phylogenetically ancient class of related signals and predicted that terrestrial isopoda that strongly aggregate and lack known dispersants would avoid body fluids and corpses using fatty acid necromones. These again would be things like uh, like oleic acid or linoleic acid. And so the researchers here found that, indeed, these, these isopods were, uh, were, were repelled by uh, several things. So crushed conspecifics, they were also avoidant of non-crushed, just intact corpses of their own kind, and alcohol extracts of the bodies of their own dead. And then they write, quote, As predicted, the repellent fraction contained oleic and linoleic acids, and authentic standards repelled several isopod species. Uh, And then I think they also did some tests in uh, other organisms, tent caterpillars and fall webworms, and found that these creatures would, would also tend to, when they were sighting their nests, they would avoid sites that smelled like the body fluids of their own conspecifics. And then finally, the researchers found that just plain oleic and linoleic acids were strongly avoided by these creatures so there are diverse types of arthropods across you know v- widely varying uh categories of life that all seem to have this necromone response they smell oleic acid or linoleic acid and that signals to them some kind of get away from this reaction. And the researchers here trace this back to aquatic ancestors of all these existing creatures uh, that that lived probably more than 400 million years ago. They say at least 420 million years ago. And this predates uh, the the divergence of crustacea and hexapoda. So Modern terrestrial insects and crustaceans, which would include crabs, an ancestor tracing back to before those different categories of life split off from each other, probably developed this response. Though, of course, at some point along the way, some creatures started reacting to oleic acid as uh, as something to, to be chowed down on.
1: Wow! So there's you know there's plenty to be concerned about with um, with, with uh, our over reliance on plastic, especially single use plastics. Uh, but in this, we see a, a way that, that plastics can end up um, interfering with this uh, with, with the with the olfactory language of decomposition uh, that is so rooted and established in the natural world.
0: A hugely widespread chemical language, yeah, that mm-hmm. affects uh, yeah, insects and and, and crustaceans, and, uh, and there are different responses to it. But if the researchers in this 2021 study are right, it's that at least one of these chemical additives commonly used in plastic just happens to start saying words in this ancient language. And yeah. that kind of confuses, that could potentially confuse all kinds of organisms.
1: It's kind of like if uh, an alien probe were to land on Earth, and it was – it was, you know, just it was carrying out some sort of, uh, you know, function unrelated to human beings, but it also emitted a signal, uh, an, a, an, a, an audible signal uh, in English that said half off on electronics, um, <laughs> you know, and then people would be, then be drawn to it and they might uh-huh. be disappointed uh, when they reach it and find out that it's, it's just, you know, terraforming the planet or something and not offering discount
0: electronics. So, what, what do you say on earth that makes some people think, ah, you know, death and decay stay away and makes other people think delicious? Um,
1: All-you-can-eat buffet? I mean, really? That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, I guess so.
0: You don't have to go much further than that. Uh, the smell of packet French onion soup mix. Angels oh, yeah. to some, devils to others, you know? All right, all right. You never notice that? Like, some people smell that and it's just like the eyes go wide, it's delicious, and then, I don't know, sometimes it just smells like armpits. <laughs>
1: Maybe hot dog water would be another example. You know,
0: <laughs> you know, depending on
1: yeah, like you know, so many things. It's it's context, right? For many people, that's gonna it smells like uh, you know a day at the ballpark. Other people are gonna be like, that's just that smells like like sausage meat has been soaking in there and, and uh, you know in, in there for you know, a day or so in a
0: cart. How do hermit crabs react to hot dog water? I
1: bet. Um, well, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I bet they. I bet they. They're very interested. I, they, they want to know more about it. All right well we're going to go ahead and close the uh, the, uh, the the crab trap on this one uh, but uh, but we'll be back in the future. who knows we'll probably be back with more crab content at some point uh, though probably not for for Thursday uh, but in the meantime we'd love to we'd love to hear from everybody out there. what are your thoughts on uh, some of the myths and legends we talked about here some of the environmental issues and of course the, the behavior of crabs. Um, Oh, and on an unrelated note, I also just want to signal out uh, another really fun thing to do in New Orleans that I did not know about until uh, uh, this previous break. Music Box Village, um, really fun place. It's like, imagine like a a kind of junkyard playground environment where everything is a musical instrument and um, and, uh, and, uh, adults, children, uh, you know, whoever, everyone there is invited to sort of make sounds on it. Uh, and creates this wonderful communal experience. There are also performers there. Uh, I just had a great time with it, so I, I just felt like I should I should share this. I should share this with the world if you're not if you're not familiar with it. Oh, Never heard of that. Yeah, you can you can look it up at musicboxvillage.com. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us. Uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. It's anywhere you get your podcasts. You get core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays, artifacts on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious uh, topics and just talk
0: about a strange film. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.